This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This is where we were this morning, and uh, we read the whole 26 verses this morning, which we're not going to do tonight because of time. And if for any reason or other anybody picks this part two up on a podcast, then I would encourage you to read, uh, before you listen, uh, is to read the 26 verses of John 17 and read it uh, quietly and slowly and attentively and uh, try to get a sense uh, of this wonderful prayer. Out of the 650 recorded prayers in the scriptures, this is without question the greatest prayer uh, of all. And of all of the prayers that Jesus prayed, and sometimes it just simply says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, I thank you, Father. Remember he prayed at the grave of Lazarus and before he broke the bread and so forth. But this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And, and we have the full transcript here. John is writing this decades after he heard it. He was just a young man like all the other disciples whenever they heard Jesus pray this prayer decades later when he's an old man when he begins to write his first his gospel and then his, his letters and revelation he the Holy Spirit brings to his remembrance exactly word for word verbatim uh, what Jesus had prayed and it's a, a fantastic prayer really and it can easily divide it into three parts uh, first five verses Jesus prays for himself that what he's going to go through that God would glorify him, the Father would glorify him, that he may glorify the Father. And so it, it, it wasn't as a selfless prayer, even though he prayed that the Father would give him the glory, that he could give the glory back to the Father. He also prayed that his work on earth was done, even though technically it still hadn't been because he's got to go to the cross, but as far as he was concerned, it was as good as done. Nothing would stop him going to the cross. And then... Verses 6 to 19, uh, then he prays for his disciples that the Father would keep them as he kept them in the Father's name, that the Father now, because he's gone away, that the Father would keep them and sanctify them. And then verses 20 to 26, finally he prays for you and he prays for me and he prays for the church that was yet to be when he prayed uh, that they would see him in all of his glory and that they would be one with him as he was with the Father that we would be one with him and the Father in the glory and see him in his glory now this morning we, we did the first five verses and then we did verse 6, 7 and 8 which is into the second part of that prayer and then we had to finish so tonight we're going to pick up exactly where we left off at verse 9 and 10 so Jesus said, I pray for them, his disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And just as an aside, Martin Luther said that many can say, all mine are yours, but only Christ can say, all yours is mine. Not that Jesus didn't care about the world. He says, I pray not for the world, but for those you've given me. Not that he didn't care about the world, because he literally was going to give himself for the world in just a few hours. Literally in one hour, he would be betrayed into the hand of sinners. And before three o'clock the next day, He'd be hanging dead upon a cross, dying for the sins of the world. But in this particular moment, at this particular time, just before he entered into that passion, he's praying specifically for those disciples that walked with him for those three plus years. And he was especially concerned about them. And this is why he's praying for them. He's concerned in the light of what he's going to th go through 
and what they are going to go through because of what he's going through. Because within an hour, they're going to run from him. They're going to desert him. Peter's going to deny him in a few hours. He's going to be betrayed by one of the twelve, sold for 30 pieces of silver. And so what was going to happen to him was going to have a, a tremendous impact in those disciples. And we know that the next day when he was being crucified that only John and just a, a few women, they were the only ones that actually were there out of all of his disciples watching Jesus being crucified and dying on that cross. And yet, amazingly, knowing all of that, knowing that Peter would deny him, knowing that Judas would betray him, knowing that they would desert him, knowing that just a few would be at the cross, amazingly, he's praying here and saying categorically that they belong to him that they belong to him in spite of all the shame they would bring upon themselves, in spite of the humiliating defeat that they would have in a few hours, in spite of the fact that there would be cards and run, in spite of all of that and all of their mess-ups and all of their faults and feelings for three years that they had to put up with, in spite of all of that, he's saying they belong to me. They are mine. And he goes on to say, and I am glorified in them. Can you imagine that? He knows they're going to fail him. He knows they're going to let him down. But he says, I am glorified in them. Now that's as encouraging for us. Because he's not seeing them just as they are, but what they will become. If God only saw us as we are, not what we're going to become, dear Elvis, Dear help us. So thank God he prays this prayer. That encourages us in all of our imperfections and our mistakes and our foul-ups and our sins. In spite of all of that, he says, they are mine. And I will be glorified in them. Then he said, verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. You can sense that he knows that he's just literally a few hours left in this world. And he cannot wait to be reunited with the Father in glory. He cannot wait. He's so wanting to be with his father at this point. He knows he's got to go to the cross. Nothing is going to prevent that. It's as good as done. He's finished with this world as far as his physical flesh is concerned. Yes, he'll make a few appearances after his resurrection, but it's never going to be like what it was for the three years. He's finished with it. He's going back to the Father. And he knows it. He knows this. But he's concerned about his disciples. He's going to leave them. They're going to stay. And in verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That was Judas, of course. Jesus is well aware that in the next 24 hours, the disciples' faith is going to be rocked to its foundation. They have no clue what they're about to face in a couple of hours. But he knew exactly. And so while he was with them during those three years, he encouraged them, he comforted them, he protected them, he blessed them, he stood up for them. 
He guided them. He helped them in every possible way. But he knows he's gone back to the Father. He knows that they're going to be on their own without him for the first time in three years. He knows that what they're going to go through is going to rock them. And so he prays for the Father to keep them in his name. So in a sense, he's saying, Father, for three years, if I could paraphrase, for three years, I have kept them in your name. None of them are lost except the son of perdition. But now I'm going. So while I'm gone, would you keep them in your name? Would you look after them for me? So considerate, isn't it? So concerned about his disciples. And by implication about us too. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. God is well able to keep us. Jude said so, didn't he? Jude said, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. (laughs) So Jesus is making sure Remember, they're listening. They're hearing. Father, keep them in your name. Didn't fully understand because they had no idea the horror that was coming upon them in a few minutes, a few hours. But Jesus is making sure they're going to be kept. Verse 13, but now I come to you And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Incredibly, right here in the middle of this prayer, he reveals that there's joy in his heart. A joy that he wants them to have. in spite of what he knows is going to happen, in spite of everything, and he's concerned about his disciples and the magnitude of the suffering that he was about to endure, in spite of all of that, he speaks about joy in the middle of this prayer. How can he do that? Hebrews 12 and 2 gives us a clue. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had a joy that surpassed ordinary happiness or a good feeling. There was something within Christ that was joyful. You know, I've, I've heard over the years people say, well, there's no scripture said that Jesus ever laughed, but there's scripture says that he wept. Almost given the impression that Jesus ran about with a big sad face. I can't imagine Jesus at the wedding feast of Canaan in Galilee, which lasted about a week, sitting in a corner with a big sad face and the bride and groom and all the guests having a wonderful time and being joyful and joyous. And Jesus sitting there with a big straight face. I can't imagine that. I imagine he smiled. I imagine he laughed. I imagine he rejoiced. He was glad with them. There was something attractive about the master. Even the little children was drawn to him. And so he's praying that they would experience his joy. Do you think he got that prayer answered? Do you remember in Acts 5 and how the Sanhedrin religious hierarchy were arguing about Peter and the disciples? And Gamaliel, the, the great Pharisee, he said to them, he says, you know, over the years, with all kinds of messiahs, so-called common, raise up disciples, but it came to nothing. And so, if this is false, 
it'll come to nothing. But if it's real, then you can't fight it because it's God. And so they listened to that advice. But they weren't, couldn't do much because the crowd loved Jesus. <laughs> so you know what they did? They said, well, we'll teach them a lesson. We'll give them a good hiding. And they did. They beat them. Give them a good pasting. And sent them away and said, do not preach in that name ever again. And if you read there, it says the disciples went out. <laughs> and they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. <laughs> they actually rejoiced. They were glad. They were filled with joy that they should be treated the same as the master. I think we're far from that, aren't we? But he got that prayer answered because that's what they were like. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. In John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Hmm. The world has hated them because they're not of this world, because I am not of this world. There's a reason why the world hates us. He says, I've given them your word. The world hates the word. Satan hates the word of God because it's contrary to the kingdom of darkness. It's contrary to this world's wisdom. It's contrary to the way this world operates. And it hates it. It despises it because it condemns it. It's against it. And if we have the word and we know the word and we live the world, the word won't like us. It will not like us. And we see that every day, more and more. How those who stand up for the word are castigated and despised and called all manner of things exactly the way they did with Jesus and they did with the prophets of old. So we're in good company. Our worldview is different. Our attitudes are different. Our works are different. At least they should be. And if they're not, then there's something wrong. We need to examine ourselves. This world is counterculture to the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Satan may be the God of this world, but he's not our God. <laughs> We're not in the kingdom of darkness anymore. We're in the kingdom of light. Mm -hmm. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I know I beat this drum continually, but if we do not get into this word, read this word, study this word, understand this word, try the best to live this word, then we'll be no better in the world out there. We'll think like the word, we'll talk like the word, we'll act like the word. And that's one of the biggest problems in the church today because sometimes you can hardly tell the difference. People at work may look at so-called Christians and say, what's different? What is different? but we're not conformed to this world. 
We're transformed by the renewing of our mind because we read the Word of God. Arno Gabaldine, an old, old preacher of yesteryear, he says that when Jesus speaks of himself in this prayer, he simply calls God Father. And we see that again and again and again. Whenever he speaks of his disciples and us, he calls God Holy Father. Holy Father, keep through your name. That's the first time, it's the only time he actually says that. It's the only time. It's written here. Why? He's leaving them. They're going to be on their own in an unholy world that's anti-Christ, that's anti-God, that's anti-the Word of God, that's an unholy, irreverent world. And there they are going to be left in it to be ambassadors. So he says, Holy Father, you're holy. You're the Holy One. In other words, help them to be holy in an unholy world. Then Gibbelin says, when he speaks of the, the world, he calls God righteous, righteous Father. Why did he do that? Because God's a righteous God. You see, God set the cross between himself and this world and then crucified Jesus, his son, on that cross. So God says, you're going to have to deal with the cross. If you're going to get to me, you're going to have to go through the cross. You're going to have to deal with the cross because I'm a righteous judge and I'm a righteous God. Can't you see that those disciples on the day of Pentecost onwards, that the preaching of the cross was the main thing. It was the center of everything they said. Every sermon they preached, the cross, the cross, the cross. Because the world has got to deal with the cross. There's no other way to God except through the cross. Then he goes on to say, verse 15 and 16. I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're in the world, we're not of the world, and one day we'll be taken out of the world. But meantime, here we are, in the world but not of it just as they were after Jesus went until they died. Almost all of them as martyrs. And so, until Christ comes or calls, we're in the Word, we're not of it, and we'll be the representatives of God in this world. So he's not going to take us out of it. He's going to let us stay in it until he comes or calls now he says, you're my ambassadors. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Then he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. D.L. Moody, <laughs> he said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Psalm 119 and 11, your word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 9 of that psalm, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Warren Wearsby said this, God's word comes to us in three ways. His word is truth, verse 17. This word is truth from beginning to end. Who want to know the truth? 
that's in the Word. You may say, but everybody's saying such and such. But all those scientists, all those academics, all those philosophers, they're all saying the same thing. Everybody's saying it. If everybody's saying it, it must be wrong. And if it doesn't line up with this word, it's certainly wrong. Because this is truth in a crooked and perverse generation. Then he says, his son is the truth. John 14. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The embodiment of truth. When Pilate stood before Jesus, he couldn't see it. It was standing right before him. He was looking truth in the eye and he couldn't see it. What is truth? There's the embodiment standing right in front of him. See, the world doesn't get it unless God opens their hearts. And so his spirit is truth. His son is the truth. Sorry, his word is truth, his son is truth, and his spirit is truth. He is the spirit of truth, 1 John 5. So he says, with the mind, we learn God's truth. With the heart, we love God's truth. And with the will, we yield to the Holy Spirit and we live God's truth. Seven times in this prayer, Jesus makes reference to the Word. It's such a big part in his life. Such a big part. Even when he was 12 years old, he astounded the learned doctors at the temple. Not just because he was the Word made flesh. He had to learn it and memorize it and study it. And he did it from his mother's knee until he was saturated in the Word. Even on the cross, when he was being tortured and going through that awful, awful pain and agony, what came out of his heart? The Word. He was quoting from Deuteronomy. The Word came out. If it's not in there, it won't come out. But if we're feeding on it continually, you say, well, I read the Bible every day. I'm not too sure I'm getting much out of it. You keep reading it. Keep feeding it. Sometimes you sit down to your dinner at night and you have the thing at before you realize I've ate my dinner. Didn't even taste it. Never touched the sides. Down it went. But don't eat it for a week or two weeks or three weeks or a month and see how weak you are. Keep eating it. Keep feeding on the Word. Jesus in the wilderness, what did he use? The Word. It is written. It is written. It is written. Then verse 18 19. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Six times in this prayer, he says he was the sent one. He was sent. I came from the Father. He was sent. And those disciples that gathered around him, that were with him during this prayer, they were sent. Apostle means sent one. They were sent ones, but they were different. Now, in a sense, we are also sent. Go you into the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. So, in a sense, we're sent. But not in the same sense as those apostles, because none of our names will ever appear in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. But nonetheless, to the degree that we're to go into the world, to that degree we're sent. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they go unless they're sent? And so, Jesus is praying for them, his disciples. And now in this final part of the prayer, 
He's praying specifically for you and for me. I do not pray, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Over 20 centuries has passed and Jesus prayed that prayer. His prayer has been answered every hour of every day of the year. Somewhere today, all over the world, men, women, boys and girls have come to Christ and owned him as Lord and Savior. And that has happened every day since he prayed that prayer. And then those disciples who were the first to go out and preach that word, then that has been carried on down through the generations. You remember how Paul had the vision of the man of Macedonia come over and help us? He made that short trip across the sea, and when he got there, he found a woman, Lydia, and her servants praying at the river, He led them to Christ. She was a godly woman, but she didn't know the Savior. And so he led her to Christ. Then, just after that, you remember how because of that woman with the spirit of divination, he cast it out, and, you know, the ones who were controlling her were losing money, so he got put into jail. And then that was the, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. And right there in Philippi, was the first European church that was born. And you and I are probably the offshoot of all that flowed from Philippi all over Europe. Yeah, there was the period of the dark ages and difficult times, but the word still went out. The word still was preached. Men and women still took the word out. And here we are today in the 21st century, saved, born again by God's Spirit, Because somebody somewhere brought the word to us. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. Then he prays, verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may believe that you sent me. The oneness of the church, the unity of the church is very important to Christ. So important that in his last public prayer he prays for it. Now, within what we call Christendom, there's all kinds of branches of Christianity and so called Christianity. There's Russian Orthodox, there's the Coptic Church. There's Greek Orthodox. There's the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Church of England, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Methodists, Baptists, Evangelicals, Brethren, everything. And lots more that I can't even mention. All of them stress various emphasis on different doctrines and forms of government in the church and modes of worship. Very different, very varied. Some are genuine. Some are false. There are cults and false cults that go under the name of so-called Christian. But within all of that, and out of all of that, There is a body, a true body of Christ, true believers, not just professors of Christianity, those who profess, but those who possess. He's not talking about an ecumenical movement that's man-made, that's forced and false. He's talking about people who have some basic beliefs. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe he was born of a virgin. They believe he lived and he died. He went to a cross. He died for our sins. They believe that he is the only way to heaven. 
that there's no salvation in any other name, only his name. None. They believe that he went to heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. If we believe that, then we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the body of Christ. That's what he prayed for. And that's what we have today. Amidst all of that, there's a true body and a true oneness and a true unity. Yes, we can differ on certain things. That's fine. They don't define our salvation. But this is what he prayed for. That the world may believe that you sent me. The world needs to see the local body of believers. And this is what blesses me that's happening in this town. The local body of believers, as far as they can, working together as one body in Christ. See, before this recent coming together, years and years and years ago, I remember we were about to do something in this church. We were going to blitz this town with, remember the Jesus video? But then we had the idea, well, we could have done it. We could have paid for it. We could demand manpower to do it. Wouldn't been a problem. We had the idea, well, what if we get the other churches involved? Would they get involved? And so I called them together, all of the pastors, all of the ministers. And I remember the meeting in our home. And I remember it so well because of something I said, and I paused when I said it. So after we met and we greeted, and then we decided to get down to business, I said, well, before we do this, let me just say something. There's only one church in this town, you know. And I paused, and I says, but we all meet in different buildings on Sunday morning. (laughs) And do you know what? We worked together in that Jesus video. And we distributed it to every home in this town. And it worked for a while, but then ministers moved on, new ones came in, and it took another while, and everything went into abeyance for a long time. But then recently, last year particularly, then it began to spring up again. And isn't it wonderful? Now I know that, you know, we sing and we praise and we clap our hands and we get lots of instruments and we make a joyful sound, all of that there. And there's others that would just drive them to distraction. It would. And maybe if we went to their meeting, maybe we'd be driven to distraction too because they only sing it once. We'd sing it ten times. <laughs> but you know what? God's here on Sunday, and he's there on Sunday too. And if we offer this up with a heart, and they offer theirs up with a heart, God will accept it. So it's everything from happy clappy to smells and bells and everything in between. <laughs> everything in between. But the important thing, and this is what the world looks for, the important thing that we love one another and that we're not backbiting and gossiping and pulling each other down, and particularly other members of other churches, because the world sees that and it doesn't like it. It makes a mockery of our Christianity. And God hates it too. And Jesus' great prayer is that we be one, as he and the Father is one. Then he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And the glory he's speaking of here is not the glory he spoke of earlier, we've mentioned this morning. What he spoke of earlier was his pre-incarnate glory that he so desperately wanted to have again with the Father. The glory here is the glory he had when he was on this earth when he went around blessing and helping and encouraging and ministering and teaching. Now he said, I want you to have that glory. That's what I want you to do. Be like me everywhere you go. 
That's the glory he's talking about here. Just be like me everywhere you go. That's the glory he passed to his disciples. That's the glory he's passing to us. And he prays for us to be made perfect in one, mature in one. It's often said that our sanctification is a difference between our standing and our state. As far as our standing is concerned, it is a done deal. The moment you get saved, you were set apart by God for a holy use. You're sanctified, cleansed, set apart for God to use. That's done. You'll never be any more saved in a million years than you are right now. Done. That's our standing before God. We're righteous in Him. But what about our state? What about our everyday life? Ah, that's a wee bit different, isn't it? With all of its limitations, with all of its temptations, with all of the hassles, the struggles, with all of the stuff that you've got to wade through and go through, we need a daily sanctifying for that. You remember how Jesus, when he was having that supper and called the disciples and they came, and of course what they were supposed to do was, was, wash, was wash the feet there was nobody there to do the foot washing that night, but they should have done that. But you see, they were the great leaders. They were going to ones that sit in the right hand and the left hand. That was beneath them. They should have been washing Jesus' feet. So what does Jesus do? He gets a basin and a towel. He bends down and starts to wash their feet. And Peter, he jumps back. He says, no, you can't wash my feet. You wash my feet. <laughs> Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And Peter, ever being the extremist, says, well, don't, don't just wash my feet, then wash all of me. He says, no, I don't need to do that. It's just your feet are dirty. See, before he left his home that night, no doubt he had a bath. But by the time he walked to where the place was, his feet was dirty. And so it was customary to wash your feet. He says, no, just, just your feet. He says, not everyone is clean here. That was Judas. Hmm. And so as we go through this world, our feet gets dirty. Because it's a dirty world we live in, isn't it? It's an unholy, unrighteous world we live in. So our feet gets dirty, so to speak. So how do we wash them? By the washing of the water of the Word, the Bible says. Every day our mind is bombarded with this world, isn't it? Every single day. All kinds of stuff floating into our minds. So we need that sanctifying every day. Verse 23, soon be through. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What an incredible statement. The Father loves me as much as he loves his own beloved Son. How could that possibly be? I don't know. I can't understand that. But he does. If Jesus hadn't said that, I wouldn't have believed it. But I have to believe it because Jesus said it. If Jesus said, my father loves you as much as he loves me, then who am I to argue? I don't have to understand that. I just have to receive that and accept that and say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> That's more than you could ever ask for, isn't it? The fact that he loves us just as much as he loves his own dear son. Father, I desire that they whom you give me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Did you ever have one of those moments in life when for some reason or other, Suddenly at that moment, you miss somebody. Maybe it was a loved one who's gone to the glory. Maybe a relative who's at the other side of the world. Or maybe something happened that was exciting, that was thrilling, 
And at that moment, you were on your own when it happened, and you just wish somebody had been there to see it, to experience it with you. Well, Jesus is having one of those moments. He's having one of those moments. He knows that he's soon to go back to the Father. He must leave them behind. The cross is before him. Heaven awaits him. He longs deeply, desperately longs to be back with the Father, to be enthroned with that glory and crown that he had before the foundation of the world. But now he considers his children. He knows they're going to have to stay. But really, at that moment, he just wishes, he just wishes they could be with him to see what's going to happen to him, to see the reception he's going to get, to see the glory that's going to come on him, to see him sit on his, sit on his throne. And he desperately wanted that. You know, when you read this prayer and you think about it a bit more deeply, you, you begin to sense the pulse of his heart, the, uh, the deep desire of his heart, what he really, really wanted. And so he desperately wants him to share this glorious moment that awaits him, the joy that was set before him. Once he gets through the cross, once he's resurrected, once he gets back to the Father. <laughs> and do you know what? One day we're going to see it. One day we're going to enter into that joy. Remember the parable? The five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. And the guy with the five went out and got five more. The one with the two went out and got two more. The one with the one buried it and got nothing. And the one with the five and the one with the two, he said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. <laughs> Heaven is going to be such a joyful place. It's going to be bursting with song. Song and music is going to fill heaven continually. And there'll be no bum notes. <laughs> there'll be no off chords. It'll be just glorious. And we are going to be there, right there, enjoying it. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. 2,000 years later, the world, much of it still doesn't know the Father. Doesn't know God. Doesn't know Jesus. There's almost 7 billion people on earth. There are untold millions that right now has never, ever heard the name Jesus. Never heard it. Don't know what it is, who it is. Never heard it. Whose fault's that? It's our fault. It's the church's fault. There's people who's never heard of Jesus heard of Coca-Cola. That's the truth. And that's our fault. Jesus said when this gospel is preached all over the world, then will the end come. And so the quicker that happens, the better it's going to be, isn't it? Where everybody will get a chance. Was it Oswald J. Smith said that nobody should hear the gospel twice until everybody's heard it once. And not everybody's heard it once. There's great organizations going out into the world continually and spreading the word. Wonderful. But there's much yet to be done. And this is why we support missions. That's why every church should support missions, to get the word out. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. The world is ever going to be reached for Christ. It's only going to be reached through us, through his body on earth. There's no other way. And I have declared unto them your name, your nature, your character, what you're like. I've declared that unto, I revealed that unto them. And I will declare it. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
The greatest revelation the world will ever know is that God has sent his Son into the world to take away their sins. That is the greatest revelation they will ever know. And that's what Jesus is praying for. He's given us the privilege of knowing the Father by name. We know his nature. We know his character. We have experienced his love, his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness. But he wants the world out there to know that and experience that. And now his last final words in this remarkable prayer. He prays above all things that the Father's love that is in him may also be in us. Without his love in us, Paul says, we are sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Listen, we may have all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. We may have all of that and more. But if the love of Christ is not in our hearts, it's not going to reach anybody. The world out there doesn't care about your doctrine. They care about your love. They care about the love of God if it's in us. That's what they care about. There'll be time to teach them the doctrine when we get them saved. But first of all, they want to know, do you love them? Do you care? Do you really, really care? Do we really care? Romans 5 and 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this wonderful great prayer of Jesus is still bearing fruit even to this day. It's as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when he prayed it. And I for one am glad the Holy Spirit brought it back to John's memory to record it for us to read. Amen. I'm sorry I'm a bit long tonight, but I had to finish it. I couldn't stretch it into another week. Well, I probably could have, but I didn't want to. All right, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great mercy and love towards us. We bless you for that day you stepped into our lives. We have never, ever been the same. We will never be the same. And Lord, we want others to know Christ and his salvation. We want men and women and boys and girls to find Jesus as Lord and Savior. Even so, come Lord Jesus is our cry. And Lord, for that moment when we'll stand in your presence and see you in your glory, Lord, with all that we can imagine, what a day that will be when my Savior I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. What a glorious day that's going to be, Lord. And so, Lord, we look forward in anticipation for whatever time we have left on this earth, however good it may be, it'll peel into insignificance on that day when we see you seated on your throne, full of that glory that you prayed for. So we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.